1: but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to look around and realize there's a lot of complicated stuff happening in our world. Some of it's not so pleasant. Some of it's okay. But here's the thing that I don't think enough people realize, and that is we can face unpleasant facts squarely. We don't have to stand around wringing our hands and asking one another, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Or even worse, asking government, please fix this and save us and, and make us feel safe again. Nope. You and I can actually do a great deal to better our situation no matter where we happen to be standing. But uh, but you've got to be willing to do a couple of things. Number one, you got to be willing to stay tethered to reality. And uh, number two, got to be more concerned about who you are and what you stand for and less concerned about what makes me mad or what makes me fearful. Now, if that makes sense, that I'm inviting you to pull up a chair. Let's go exploring today. I have some wonderful information to share with you. And I have some wonderful sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, also Monticello College, Life Saving Food, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and Govern Your Crypto. And I thought maybe we could start today with some good news because we don't hear enough about the stories of people who have the courage to stand up to government or to bureaucracy in any of its forms and who end up prevailing got an excellent article from the Foundation for Economic Education this is from Caleb Trotter and it's about how a California tattoo artist <clears throat> excuse me beat a public health beat public health officials rather who tried to deny her a permit California tattoo artist at Delia Fields is finally free to do what she loves and that's the good news however her story highlights the uneven some would say arbitrary Constitutional protections enjoyed by some entrepreneurs, but not by others. Caleb Trotter writes, the last few years haven't been easy for Delia. She lost everything she owned in the campfire of 2018, except for her dog, her truck, and the clothes on her back. She then bounced between a Walmart parking lot, friends' couches, and a motel before moving to Redding, California to start over. Well, after arriving in Redding, Delia found work in a restaurant, and even started rebuilding her life. Surviving a life-changing disaster was bad enough on its own, but even working full-time, she was barely making ends meet as a server. Keep in mind, this is California. It's expensive. As she contemplated her future, Delia thought back to college, where she studied cultural anthropology, and she was captivated to learn that over millennia, cultures throughout the world have practiced body art to record events and to express themselves. That's when she realized she wanted to become a tattoo artist. Now, even though she was still working full-time at the restaurant, she found a local body artist willing to train her as a piercing apprentice, teaching her the ins and outs of body art. And after apprenticing for over a year and a half, Delia had mastered proper techniques and safe practices, and she learned how to run a business. So with these new skills in hand, she began thinking about her next move. Again, though, fate had other plans. With the arrival of COVID-19, the shop she was trained in was forced to close and as a result, Delia set her sights on opening her own studio once the pandemic improved. So, in April of 2021, Velvet Orange was born. Combining her talents with her friend and former boss, Shar, she found an ideal location in downtown Reading and she applied for the required health and safety permits for a new body art studio. Now, even though the county's health inspection of the studio found it to be flawless, the county still denied Delia a permit to tattoo because the city had recently enacted a prohibition on tattooing in the downtown area. The inspor- inspector formed informed rather Delia that the county could only issue a permit for body piercing. Now that news was upsetting and it was confusing. An existing tattoo studio already operated in the center of downtown Reading, and bewilderingly Delia's studio was just a mere block within the downtown no tattoo zone. Worse still, she could see another tattoo studio from the corner of her street, just beyond the prohibited zone, but she refused to let this bad news stop her. With the help of Pacific Legal Foundation, in September of 2021, Delia sent the city of Reading and Shasta County letters pointing out the First Amendment problem with arbitrarily banning tattoo businesses in downtown Redding. Indeed, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit held in 2010 that tattooing, as well as the business of tattooing, is purely expressive activity, fully protected by the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and that a ban on total tat, a total ban on tattooing is not a reasonable restriction on speech. Now, the article goes on to say that the city and the county quickly relented upon being reminded of the First Amendment's protections for tattooing and the business of tattooing. Reading notified Delia that they would update their downtown zoning plan <clears throat> to remove the restriction on tattoo businesses, with the amendments finally being enacted in February of 2022. And with the city's assurances, Shasta County proceeded to issue an updated permit authorizing Velvet Orange to provide tattoo services as well as body piercing. So Delia's perseverance and determination paid off. But she would enjoy only a shadow of those constitutional protections if she wanted to open most any other type of business. See, the reason she was able to fight back so successfully is simply that the courts recognize greater constitutional protections for speech than for the right to earn a living. Let that sink in for a second. If a business is expressive, like tattooing, then it enjoys robust constitutional protection with a heavy burden on the government to justify restrictions on the business's operations. But if your business is non-expressive, like say it's a massage therapy studio or a food truck, for example then it has almost no protections against arbitrary restric- restrictions. Just as an example, Redding's provisions that now allow tattoo businesses downtown still prohibit massage businesses. So there's no principal justification for treating some constitutional rights as second class. In other words, an entrepreneur's right to earn a living is implicated just as much whether she's in the business of tattooing or preparing food or providing massage therapy. In fact, in Dent versus the state of West Virginia, the Supreme Court stated that it is undoubtedly the right of every citizen of the United States to follow any lawful calling, business, or profession he may choose. But unfortunately, nearly a century ago, the Supreme Court also held that regulations on opening and running small businesses are generally subject to a rational basis review, which most courts have said requires only a hypothetical connection between a regulation and a legitimate government concern like health, safety, or the welfare of the public. So even if the hypothetical justifications are proven wrong, it doesn't matter. They just had to be plausible when the government passed the law. In practice, courts typically rubber-stamp government restrictions on non-expressive entrepreneurship. Now, as a result, most entrepreneurs have little protection against the whims and preferences of state and local lawmakers and in many instances even need their competitors' permission to open their doors. Caleb Trotter says all entrepreneurs deserve the full promise of the constitutional protections that let Delia have a chance at success. And he says entrepreneurs like Delia aren't asking for special favors. To paraphrase abolitionist and suffragette Sarah Grimke, all they ask is that their government take their feet from off their necks and permit them to stand upright. Now, if you're from California, you're probably more familiar with this than most. I've never lived in California, but I have plenty of friends who live there and who have told me, yeah, when it comes to, you know, to starting a business, the, the hoops are considerable. Even if you don't start a business, let's say you want to remodel something on your home. Do you know how many permits you have to pull? And, of course, each, each one of those permits requires permission from this bureaucracy or this bureaucrat, and they don't give that permission for free. Somebody has to come out, take a look for themselves, and assure you, yes, you need to give us this much money. And all of these little bureaucracies add up very quickly. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm telling you an example. This is something that a friend from California actually had shared with me about. They wanted to add an extra bedroom onto their house. And she just sat there and walked me through the process. Okay, so first we had to go to this office and get this permit, and then we had to have this inspection and then this permit. And I, I lost track. You know, you would think, oh, well, there's three or four different, uh, you know, bureaucrats involved in, in making that happen. No, it was it was ten or more, maybe as many as a dozen. And, and remember, every single time you interact with the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy has its hand out to you demanding that you pay it for the privilege of being... You know, ordered and structured in a uh, safe and uh, harmonious fashion. Okay, I'll I'll knock off the sarcasm here a bit, but uh, I guess the the premise I'm trying to promote here is yeah, it is possible to have too much of a good thing if you consider bureaucracy a good thing. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I, pi- I picked this tattoo story because I thought, well, this ought, to, this ought to get some people thinking just because I know not everybody is a fan of tattoos. Those inkies out there expressing themselves. <laughs> but I want, the, I want even those inkies to be able to succeed and not have to jump through unnecessary hoops or have to bear the weight of a government boot on the back of their necks. And it should be the same for everybody else government needs to get out of the way and let the market run itself
0: this is the brian hyde show this is the brian hyde show hey welcome back to the show
1: i want to give a shout out to dixie chiropractic that's dr ward wagner you can go to DixieChiro.com. I've provided a handy link in my show notes where you can connect to them directly. And if you are finding yourself suffering from bulging herniated discs, for instance, that's, that's a pretty uh, serious amount of pain, and Dixie Chiropractic can help you. Check out their $99 intro special, two treatments plus massage. If you know someone who is dealing with neuropathy, have them check out the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Or if you, unfortunately, have suffered car accident injuries, talk to DixieChiro.com. You'll find that there is no out-of-pocket expense. Under law, you know, you you have a certain amount of coverage that will pay for treatment for those car accident injuries. Reach out to Dr. Ward Wagner at Dixie Chiropractic. Again, DixieChiro.com. Well, you wouldn't know it from the way that our media reports the news, but do you know the most important battle you will fight is often the one between individual conscience and government telling you to do something. Michael N. Peterson has a great article from the American Institute for Economic Research about ideas that shaped the words that made the modern world. Now, this is a little intellectual, but you know what? That's good for you. That's something that will actually expand your thinking and help you better understand the world at a much deeper level than just, oh, yeah, I heard somebody say something that sounded pretty today. This is, this is part of the nuts and bolts of having a foundation under why things are the way they are, understanding how we got here from there. In this case, Michael Peterson writes, For anyone who hasn't read Deirdre McCloskey's volum- voluminous uh, bourgeois tri- trilogy, he says, I invite you to look at it and to seriously consider her arguments. To summarize her account, and he says, I promise I'm not giving away too much. A kind of rhetorical exchange between people nurtured the ideas and culture that would drive economic growth first to northwestern Europe in the 17th century, followed by the rest of Europe in the 18th century. And in particular, she addresses what he calls interpersonal rhetoric or the way in which we talk to each other on a more informal and concrete basis. Here's how McCluskey summarizes it. Quote, what changed with accelerating mass from 1600 and 1800 was how people talked about each other, yielding a change in how they thought about technical and then social problems. The revaluation, in short, came out of a rhetoric that would and will enrich the world. End quote. So interpersonal rhetoric within a liberal, tolerant society praises entrepreneurs and risk, tra- risk takers, rather, and treats them as the engines that power social and economic progress. What's the alternative to that? I think that would be that politically correct, we must embrace diversity. And how do we do that? Everybody must think and say exactly the same things. Yeah, that's not diversity. That's the, That kind of conformity, that's the mark of totalitarian regimes. That's, that's not entrepreneurship. That's not going to, to promote any kind of progress. Now, Michael N. Peterson goes back and says, now, however, there exists a version of rhetoric that embodies more abstract meanings and concepts. And this is what he calls higher order rhetoric, which he defines as the way in which people talk about institutions, whether formal or informal. For example, whenever we discuss law or the ideal functions of a society, we're contributing to a higher order rhetoric that seeks deeper into our larger cultural membrane. A liberal society encourages higher-order rhetoric that favors peace, open markets, open inquiry, and an impartial rule of law. So, say, in, say, for instance, in 1477, Mary of Burgundy signed the Great Privilege following a swell of discontent among several Dutch states. Now, the document contained a list of provisions that each state found favorable by asserting control over governmental affairs. And McCluskey uses this example to show how a changing ethical rhetoric spilled over into important political discussions that eschewed centralized authority and asserted equal dignity to all. This also encapsulates a higher order rhetoric where certain language about ideals and institutions like individual and states' rights became a powerful device for changing the culture into one that supported progress over stagnation. Now, Michael Peterson says, in a forthcoming paper, paper, Michael Duma draws on the Bill of Rights as an example of how to use it in the lex, in the lexicon, or how its use, rather, in the lexicon began to take on new meaning. He writes that as Americans recognized the value of the first ten amendments, the term Bill of Rights became a useful phrase to wield in resisting the expansion of government authority. In other words, the document transformed from a mere list of constitutional guarantees— ...into a cultural artifact that serves to elevate higher-order rhetoric rather to a common discourse. Now, the differences separating interpersonal and higher-order rhetoric aren't always clear. So, for example, take the common yet indignant expression, corporate fat cats. Now, in this case, a fat cat can be an insult hurled at a specific executive believed to be greedy and corrupt... This use of the term would qualify under the heading of interpersonal rhetoric since it's being used to define or describe rather a concrete and specific object in conversation. But on the other hand, the barb can be used to highlight a perceived institution of greed. In other words, a a perverse incentive structure designed to fill the pockets of some at the expense of others. And this form of communication fits under the banner of higher order rhetoric, regardless of how accurate the description is. What matters most is how the rhetoric is used. And societies flourish when they're rich in conversations that celebrate entrepreneurs and treat institutions as works in progress. So in standard economic growth theory, technology is treated as a coefficient that either raises or lowers a country's total economic output. Also, total factor productivity. I guess TFP is the the acronym for it. So wealthy countries have a high TFP, Poor countries have a relatively low TFP. Higher-order rhetoric counts under the TFP parameter, but for obvious reasons, it's much harder to measure the quality of words than the number of patents that have been granted or some other proxy for a variable that remains vexingly ambiguous among economists. Similarly, higher-order rhetoric must overcome network effects. Now, That simply means that the marginal cost of using rhetoric falls as more people join the network and contribute to the conversation. This could explain why some European countries began to, to develop first, because they benefited from a wide network of participants who were already engaged in discussions that embraced ideals like individual rights and the rule of law. But to complicate matters further, there doesn't appear to be any discernible standard by which you can rate the degrees of higher-order rhetoric. Sometimes higher-order rhetoric takes uh, contains rather specific reference to institutions. Sometimes it suits a more philosophical purpose. So in classifying rhetoric, we have to take into consideration how abstract the words are and what they represent. And those ambiguities become apparent when you invoke the U.S. Constitution or cite the wisdom of the Founding Fathers. For example, it's more common to cite the overarching philosophy of the Constitution than it is to cite the individual articles, sections, and amendments that make it up. Here, higher-order rhetoric is used to legitimize the institutions that Americans value. We're not just exchanging words with one another, we're enriching our culture and economy by unconsciously testing the limits of progress. So once governments finally let people make their own decisions, their innovation and economic growth were viewed to be in the interest of everyone. As McCluskey notes, following the the, the combination of political fragmentation in Europe, following the Black Death and the emergence of the printing press that spread the written word, set the stage for cultivating the ideas that would launch an economic revolution. And in the process, rhetoric of all degrees began to shift in favor of a liberal world. People respected one another, not because of their social rank or status, but because they were individuals in pursuit of something greater and were willing to work to achieve a higher economic station. Michael Peterson says McCluskey rightly points out that political argument shifted away from things like disputes between popes and emperors and instead shifted to disputes between governments and individual consciences. Talk about each other and the institutions that supported them was what made the modern world rich, driven by ideas that captivated the minds of our forebears. This reminds me so much of the saying, you know, small minds talk about people. Big minds talk about ideas. Maybe we need to pay a little closer attention to what we're talking about.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I would love it if you would click on the link, or better still, if you live in southern Utah, go directly to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. All right, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, that's the link in my show notes. But if you go to their business, you will find a full-service, and I mean true, full-service center for sewing machines, the supplies. Not just sewing machines, too. They have the sergers. They have the long-arm quilting machines. We're talking state-of-the-art embroidery machines. Everything you need to create useful items, as well as uh, heritage items. And best of all, they service what they sell. And, and to me, this, this is the, the most winning point of everything that they have to offer. When you buy a machine from them, they can train you. They can give you classes on how to use it. It's not just, well, there you go. Take it home and good luck. They'll help you learn how to put it to good use. I don't see how you could go wrong. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. you find them at 779 South Bluff Street in St. George, Utah. Or click the link that I provide in the show notes at the Brian Hyde show.com Well, there is no shortage of people standing in line to denounce big business. I got a great article here from Alan Stevo that reminds us that if you have beef with big business, and, and Trust me, I do have beef with big business, you know, that, especially when they're enforcing, you know, for instance, jab or job mandates or other things like this. When they become woke, I do have some beef with them. But Alan Stevo says, remember, it's not businesses that you should be worried about. It's government, always government. He says, on War Room, Steve Cortez recently declared big business an enemy to conservatives. Now Cortez could have taken it further and announced <clears throat> big business an enemy to the people of the United States. But Alan Stevo says this is not to make a statement about the wonderful economies of scale and massive social benefits provided to society by corporations. Instead, he says this is to criticize the overcomfortable, overly comfortable relationship between the boardroom and Washington D.C. But he makes this very crucial distinction: business is not the problem; government is the problem. They are not one and the same. As Steve Cortez astutely points out, Rather, far too many conservatives, you know folks who are part of conservative Inc., have been lulled into acquiescence that big businesses somehow are friend. And that may have been true in generations past. For instance, there was a time when companies like Disney, for example, a company that's very much in the news right now, when those companies were, in fact, guardians of family values, when they viewed themselves as patriotic citizens, as it were, of the United States. But those days are long gone. And big business right now has never been more powerful in American history. And big business has never been a more grave risk to the prosperity and security of the United States, both on the economic front as well as on the cultural front. End quote. Now, Alan Stevo says Cortez is Right. And it's only because of government's role that he's right. Numerous founding fathers properly recognized government as the greatest threat to freedom. It is the combination of state and corporate interests of this era that made bigness big business so powerful and so toxic to the interest of many Americans. Elon Musk is temporarily appreciated on the right because of the occasional tweet and the possibility he might straighten out Twitter, which Musk has referred to as the de facto public town square. But until more clear results are demonstrated, Alan Stevo says, Musk does not deserve accolades for Twitter. Musk, however, has good reason to be appreciated by conservatives for being a darling entrepreneur who shaped the landscape of several industries, both as a thinker and investor, with his own skin in the game. And these projects include X.com, PayPal, SpaceX, uh, The Boring Company, you know about that one? Boring holes in the earth, tunnels. Okay, just I didn't want you to think it was some company where people are stifling yawns. Hyperloop and Tesla. However, Musk also deserves deprecation for some of his business activities, which rely heavily on government largesse. Hillsdale professor Burton Folsom has long derided such behavior. Folsom cautions that America's most successful businessmen should not be portrayed as robber barons, neither now nor in history. And because to do that is simplistic and it ignores the true problem. Folsom argues in his myth of the robber barons that we ought to distinguish between market entrepreneurs who succeed by creating better products at lower cost and political entrepreneurs who use government to gain an advantage. The point here is it's not big government that is our friend or, or big business rather that's our friend or our enemy, but it is the market entrepreneur who benefits society, and the political entrepreneur who harms society. <clears throat> That's a very important distinction. One is a benevolent giver who deserves his, profit. his profits, rather the other one lives off the corporate welfare system. And though Musk has done yeoman's work as a market entrepreneur and deserves every penny his customers willingly gave him, he has spent all too much time as a political entrepreneur using government to gain an advantage. Now, they may seem like a slight distinction, but Alan Stevo says it's important. The years of tension in the piggy bank that has become Ukraine demonstrate one problem with American politicians selling not only access, but also the benefits of their office in exchange for gifts to family members. Public servants are put in office to be the fiduciary of the American people. But year after year, the U.S. grows poorer while wealth is siphoned by those closest to the teat of power. In a 2019 interview with CNBC's Becky Quick in Davos, Bill Gates estimated that he made a 20-to-1 return off his vaccine investments. Now, that return came because he was able to lobby governments to force his product on the populations of the world. Now, Alan Stevo says that is simply evil, and it confuses the role of government. The proper role of government is the protection of life, liberty, and property, nothing more. Gates has achieved a trifecta using government to threaten life, curtail liberty, and seize property through forced vaccination programs. And it's worth noting that his estimate on returns is a pre-COVID-19 estimate, meaning it's significantly larger now. Mark Zuckerberg, as pointed out in the newly released documentary, Rigged 2020, spent more than $400 million to steal the 2020 presidential elections. Any conservative who complains about such a detail risks being deemed a hypocrite after the controversial Citizens United decision. Wasn't the conservative opinion in Citizens United that political funding from corporations should be unlimited? So shouldn't conservatives be happy? That's not exactly what happened in 2020, though. Zuckerberg did not fund candidates. Zuckerberg paid sitting government officials to be his fiduciary and do his will during the 2020 election. It was their sworn duty to conduct a legal election for the public. Instead, they conducted an illegal election for Zuckerberg, and they did so in a way that made it impossible for a Republican presidential candidate to win. Gates may have blood on his hands. Zuckerberg appears to have stolen a federal election. Both appear to have engaged in elaborate schemes to break laws, magnify their influence, and further enrich themselves. Now, if found guilty of criminal behavior... They must see the inside of a prison cell, and so must their accomplices inside and outside government. But Alan Stevo points out, this is not an indictment of businesses, though. Quite the contrary. It's an indictment of government being for sale to the highest bidder. you see the difference? To crack down on the free enterprise system when corrupt politicians are to blame is to miss the source of the problem. Business is not bad on its own. It's quite good. Government, on the other hand, is uniquely allowed a monopoly on the use of force and consequently must be held to a higher standard. Government alone has police power, and that unique role of government has run amok and is magnified by its cozy relationship with corporations. So the problem is not business, but government and its lack of ethical boundaries. If we are to solve the problem, we must properly identify the problem, government, and the corruption we've allowed to fester around that unchecked power. Having done so, he says, precision must be used to remove the sickness rather than just destructively dropping a bomb on the entire society. But he does end on an optimistic note. Alan Stevo says we can do this. We can win the day. We just need to stay more focused, So need to stay focused rather, on the source of the problem. And isn't that the irony? Remember when uh, Occupy Wall Street was doing their thing? And they were all about, we got to rein in big business. we got to fix big business. How are we going to do it? With government. Oh, guys, guys, you're not seeing the problem. To the extent that big business is creating a problem, it's only because it's being offered protection by government or it's colluding with government. Take big government out of the picture make government uh, be be restrained as it's supposed to be restrained for the purpose only of protecting those uh, God-given rights, life, liberty, and property. Then business has to, to succeed on its own merits. Is it actually providing value? If the answer is no, guess what the market's going to do? They're going to find somebody who is. And that business will will either fail or they'll have to adjust the way they do business until they are providing value to the public. I got a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out. It's at
0: thebryanhideshow.com. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show.
1: I should say welcome back. This is where we gather to uh, revel in wrongthink on a regular basis. And, uh, you know, it may sound like, well, you guys are just being defiant here. But now there's something very refreshing about uh, being able to own your own point of view. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I know things that nobody else can know. It just simply means I accept responsibility. For what I understand. And I'm I'm perfectly open to new information, perfectly open to the idea. I may be wrong, cause I might. But I'm not gonna be spoon fed Pablum by highly paid, blow dried spinmeisters to tell me what I'm supposed to think. And I've you know, I've I've watched and I've decried media bias for years and years, but I've never seen the degree of just blatant propaganda like I see today. So in that case, it's almost kind of an honor to be able to stand up and say, yeah, mainstream media, legacy media, I don't need you. And I'm trying to persuade others, you don't need them either. What you need is the ability to, to read, a desire for knowing things for yourself, some curiosity wouldn't hurt. And then the discipline to go after it and to trust yourself, to trust that you can find the truth got a great article here from Andrea Widberg, and I share this with you because I think teaching kids to read and to love reading, that is one of the greatest gifts that you can give, and I I have to give honor to my mom. She taught me to read at a very, very early age, and and it has served me well my whole life. But there are others out there, there are people who really would like access to your kid's mind, and that's a concern. In fact, that's a problem considering some of the things that they would like to uh, to, to put into your kid's mind. So Andrea Widberg says uh, it's time to brace yourself for what's coming to American libraries. Here's what she says. She says the Venerable American Library Association, or ALA, formed in 1876, is another American institution that's abandoning the pretense of, of being a neutral organization dedicated only to ensuring that American libraries remain welcoming places that pass on the knowledge of the ages and provide a safe intellectual haven for America's youth. That's because the ALA just elected an open Marxist to be its president. In 1731, she writes, Benjamin Franklin and his Junto Club, I don't know if you say Junto or Junto. Anyway, a club of tradesmen coming together for intellectual improvement founded the first lending library in America, the Library Company of Philadelphia, at a time when few people had easy or affordable access to books. So these men shared books with each other, but it was a cumbersome system. They decided to pool their money and create a single repository of books from which all could draw. Very soon, Franklin was able to boast that the original library and the copies it spawned, quote, have improved the general conversation of Americans, made the common tradesmen and farmers as intelligent as most gentlemen from other countries, and perhaps have contributed in some degree to the stand so generally made throughout the colonies in defense of their privileges, end quote. So suddenly, because 90% of the books were in English, not Latin or Greek, ordinary people, not just the gentry, could read novels or history, travel books, and, of course, books about science, mathematics, engineering, and other practical endeavors. Civic improvement meant raising each person's level of knowledge and competence so that ordinary men could understand their rights as Englishmen founded in liberty. I mean, that seems pretty straightforward. Nobody should have a problem with it, right? So what happened since? Well, things are different now, says uh, Andrea Whitberg. She says on April 13th, the ALA held its election for president. The winner who will take over the ALA in July 2023 is Emily Drabinsky, who views herself as a Marxist lesbian. Now, according to her bio, unlike Franklin, she doesn't view libraries as an aggregation of knowledge for the improvement of individuals. Instead, libraries are meant to create mass movements for the public good. Here's how she puts it, quote, I believe in building worker power as a means of transforming our workplaces, communities and ourselves. I'm running for president of the American Library Association because I believe our institutions, school, public, academic and special libraries are fundamental infrastructures of the public good. This crucial movement calls for leadership that understands the importance of mass movements for restoring and expanding investments in us. We must help our publics understand the consequence, or the, I'm sorry, the connections between our daily practices of selection, acquisition, description, circulation, and the ju- and the preservation, rather, of information to broader movements for a more just society. End quote. Now, in her platform, which convinced AL, enough ALA members to hand her a victory, Drabinsky is very clear about the role libraries should play in America. And maybe this will surprise you, maybe not. It's not about improving each individual. Here's one of, one of the excerpts. Quote, equity as action. She says, social and economic justice and racial equity requires that we make a material difference in the lives of library workers and patrons, who for too long have been denied power and opportunity on the basis of race, gender, sexuality, national origin, spoken language, and disability. As ALA president, she says, I will direct resources and opportunities to a diverse cross-section of the association and advance a public agenda that puts organizing for justice at the center of library work. End quote. Oh, boy. (laughs) Nothing bad could happen from that, right? Andrea Whitberg goes on to write, other operating belief systems are the new Green Deal or fighting against the dominance of North American and European publishers and vendors that restrict access and audience for readers and researchers around the world. Fighting against corporate control of core library functions, which isn't a bad idea, except that she wants to replace big corporations with big government and collective organizing for bargaining power. Holy cow. Collective organizing for collective power. Okay. Drabinsky's tweets and retweets provide more insight into her values, which are firmly on the left, encompassing everything from uh, old-fashioned union organizing to new-fashioned environmentalism and social wokeism. Moving on in the article, uh, she has a couple of different tweets here. And this is from. These are tweets from Emily Drabinsky. and I mean, it's it, the, what what Andrew Woodberg's pointing out here is. This is some pretty hard left stuff that's about to be incorporated into, you know, the American Library Association. Now, Andrew Woodberg says, "When I was a little girl, I would head to the nearby public libraries after school let out, and my mother would pick me up there an hour or two later." She'd know that I was happily reading wholesome children's books, everything from history to autobiographies to novels. I never did hit the science books. But she says, nowadays, though, if I had young children, I'd be worried that time spent in the public library would see them being indoctrinated in Marxism or gender madness with a little pornography on the side. Oh, and one more thing. She says, Drabinsky ends her platform with the rather ominous phrase, remember, there are more of us than there are of them, especially when we work together. And she says, I think she's talking about you and me. Now, I'm, you know, I want to tread carefully here because I really do appreciate libraries. I appreciate what they have to offer. In fact, uh, my my birth dad, uh, my biological father, uh, that's his background. He's run libraries at the university level for years and and, and would, would probably be fairly sympathetic to what Dravinsky's talking about here. But have you noticed how, you know, for instance, where, where is the most likely place you're going to encounter a uh, drag queen story hour? You know, it's going to be in the public library. And there's, you know, the whole idea of, well, because it's public accommodation, this is where we've got to do it. And that's, uh, that's just a normal and good thing. I'm not so Sure. I feel like the, the envelope is being pushed, and because, you know, libraries, I mean, I, I'm hearkening back to an older time, okay, this is before the internet, but when we wanted to go exploring topics, that's where we went. And, it, you know, maybe, maybe this will confirm anything you've ever suspected about, uh, you know, how boring I really am, but, uh, yeah, for my mom to drop my sisters and I off at the library, when she'd drop us off, we were good. We could spend a couple of hours and we could all find something that was interesting to us maybe maybe we've just kind of outgrown that as a society maybe you know we're we're more tapped into whatever's on my screen i can just carry my library in my hand but i don't think we we go after information with the same intensity and that same curiosity that we did as kids and given all the focus right now on you know trying to reach kids at the earliest possible age so they can make sure that they're you know well well-schooled in uh, issues of gender and sexuality, you know, starting in kindergarten or even before. I just can't shake this feeling that maybe somebody has a less than above-board purpose for this. Uh, Let me put it another way. If I wanted to corrupt little minds, I definitely would want to start as early as possible. And I just can't shake the feeling that's what we're seeing happening
0: here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show.
1: This is a program that is here to spark a little curiosity on your part. To encourage you to think as clearly and independently about the world around us as possible. In other words, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm not here to thump my chest to tell you I got all the answers because I don't. But I do have access to some pretty great sources of information, resources for wrong thinkers like you and me, and I am happy to share those on a daily basis. With the help of some great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com, I don't know if you're seeing the articles about, uh, you know, I mean, look, we've got the president himself talking about, you know, there will be food shortages. There's a lot of different things that are shaping up that could very well affect the food supply chain sooner rather than later. So I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to to put fear in your heart and therefore you better run down and spend every time you got. But I'm going to suggest that people who have taken the time to put aside some food for a rainy day, especially long-term food storage, 25-year shelf life, you know what I'm talking about? They're going to have a reason to sleep a little easier at night and not worry as much, even as the prices of food continue to go up, even as availability of food is likely to contract in the near future. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at the thebryanhideshow.com, lifesavingfood.com. I trust you'll know what to do from there. Well, you know, the booming question of our time right now is who is running the show anyway? Roger Kimball has a great article on uh, americangreatness.com, amgreatness.com. And he says it boils down to a question of uh, who rules? Is it the people or is it a hive of bureaucratic would-be experts? And as you're going to hear in this hour of the show, we are seeing this play out in a very big way right now. If you caught the quote from Dr. Fauci last week after uh, the uh, after a, judge, a federal judge struck down the mask mandate on public transportation, Fauci was lamenting, well, I just think it's just terrible that, you know, this is a matter of public health. It's not a matter for the courts. This is something that should be exclusively in the realm of public health. In other words, not just trust the science or follow the science, but those, uh, those scientific bureaucratic would-be experts apparently are above the law. I mean, if you consider that the, the courts exist for the purpose of enforcing the, the limits of power. Anyway, here's what Roger Kimball has to say. <laughs> he says, some people, including me, are inclined to disparage social media, as an insidious and an, aniscephalic force, and let me try that again, aniscephalic force. Insidious it may be, but it is not entirely brainless. As proof, he says, I offer the fact that I just learned the valuable word quacker from a tweet proffered from a friend. So, who or what is a quackery Well, it is my friend observed the perfect word to describe the current president of the United States, Joe Biden. To wit, it's a puppet figure or individual whose strings are pulled entirely by someone else. Now, Roger Kimball says, look, everyone knows this. Who or what that someone else is, that remains something of a mystery, but he says, I've had occasion to observe in this space and elsewhere. I am wont to refer to this puppet magisterium as the committee. I don't know who populates this agency or even whether it's a deliberate body or just an anonymous aggregation of shared sentiment, but it would certainly be more expert if it were or it certainly could be more expert, rather, if it were, he says, Joe Biden's verbal emissions would be less incontinent and more truthful. He would not, for example, say that he had flown over every major wildfire in the country. The puppeteer would have pulled up on the mouth string when Biden claimed to have traveled 17,000 miles in the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. So the puppeteer could be more adroit, but no one can doubt his presence, whoever or whatever he is. The late political commentator Joe Sobran called this locationless body the hive. Just as in a beehive, Sobran observed, members of the coven feel they are free, yet their attitudes and behavior are utterly predictable. Liberals laugh at conspiracy theories that assume that because there's a pattern, there must be some central control. But the fact that there is no central control doesn't mean that there is no pattern. Now Sobran is especially good on the honey that coats the hives often unspoken program, By using pragmatic language for its goals, he notes, the hive misleads the general public about its ultimate goals. Here's a quote. It gains power as ordinary people adopt its language without grasping the implications. After all, who could oppose such worthy causes as civil rights, a woman's right to choose, protecting our children, and saving the environment? Sounds familiar, right? Well, the media, the news media use the buzzwords of the hive so habitually that they become virtual organs of the hive. End quote. So in other words, the hive triumphs as, insofar as people mistake its blandishments for the good. So here's how it goes. We're in favor of Disney slash CRT slash lockdowns slash higher taxes slash less freedom slash the welfare state. Because we believe that good people must endorse those things. We like to think of ourselves as good people. Therefore, we endorse whatever the hive proposes. I don't, I'm not trying to be rude when I say this, but that sure sounds like how Utah's Governor Spencer Cox operates. Wets his finger, puts it up in the wind. Okay. What's safe to support today? That's what I support. Roger Kimball says, these days, most commentators refer to the hive as the deep state, the administrative state, or the regulatory state. And he says, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about the activities and influence of this shadowy force. In fact, he says, I've written about it many times myself, often drawing upon an observation Edmund Burke made in his 1770 essay, Thoughts on the Cause of the Present Discontents. Criticizing the court of King George III for circumventing Parliament and establishing by stealth what amounted to a new regime of royal prerogative and influence peddling, Burke showed how the king and his courtiers maintained the appearance of parliamentary supremacy while covertly dismantling it. It was soon discovered, Burke wrote with a sly understatement, that the forms of a free and the ends of an arbitrary government were were things not altogether incompatible. That discovery stands behind the growth of the administrative state. We still vote. We still have a bicameral legislature. But behind these forms of a free government, the essentially undemocratic activities of an increasingly arbitrary and unaccountable regime pursues an expansionist agenda that threatens liberty in the most comprehensive way by circumventing the law. So the Biden administration is the intermittently smiling, if vacant and dozy face of this project. The reality of this enterprise is more widely felt than understood. One of the best contributions to articulating exactly what's at stake in the machinations of the administrative state is what Trump and COVID revealed, a recent essay by Glenn Elmers for The American Mind. Based on an earlier essay by John Marini, who more than anyone has plumbed the Stygian deaths of the administrative state, Elmers zeroes in on the essential tension between constitutional government, which is based upon a broadly shared common sense, and its would-be replacement replacement, rather, technocratic government, which is populated by unaccountable elite experts whose leading characteristic is faith in their own prerogatives. This permanent government, Elmers writes, is a powerful force. He says, quote, it has established its own legitimacy apart from its political or constitutional authority, within the ranks of both political parties and the courts. Bureaucratic rule is defended as essential to solving, in a nonpartisan way, the problems of modern government and society. But the bureaucracy has become a political faction on behalf of its own interests. Moreover, the party that defends progressivism and elite authority is increasingly open about politicizing the last vestiges of nonpartisan government, including the Justice Department and federal law enforcement. As their power has grown, These defenders of administrative government are increasingly unable to understand, let alone tolerate, anyone who fails to recognize the legitimacy of the administrative state. End quote. So Roger Kimball says it's important to note that this progressive project is as much a Republican as a Democratic pursuit. Despite some rhetorical differences, both parties are fully paid up worker bees in this hive and the pragmatic cover they give themselves is the supposed complexity of modern life and the complication of contemporary governance. Who but they are equipped to manage the machinery of the state, the minutiae of government? Well, Elmers nails it. The pursuit of progress, social justice, and equity become for them the moral equivalent of constitutional authority. Again, here's a quote from Elmers. As a result... The growth and consolidation of the administrative state have made it more difficult to control the apparatus of government by political means alone. It's no longer clear that the bureaucracy understands itself as the willing servant of its political masters. When the masters are perceived as a threat to the administrative state. And this is where that strangest of strange messengers, Donald Trump, comes in. Trump understood... And more to the point, he articulated for millions of Americans what was at stake in the battle between constitutional government, as traditionally understood, and its technocratic doppelganger. No, that doesn't mean that, you know, he was the answer to everybody's prayers. But like him or hate him, you have to admit, Trump uh, provided some necessary friction against that technocratic state. We'll come back to this article just
0: the other side of our messages. Please stay close. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Before we continue on with the article from Roger Kimball about who's running this show anyway, I want to give a quick shout-out here to Heather Turner, and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly if you find your feet landing in either Utah or Idaho, contact Heather when it comes time to get a mortgage. She can get you the the loan you need at the best rates possible, and more importantly, she can do it quickly, because uh, homes don't sit on the market very long. Notwithstanding that you know prices are through the roof, notwithstanding that even interest rates are beginning to creep up, People are snapping up homes just as quick as they can. You don't have time to dawdle. Call 435-703-4522. You can contact Heather through the email link I provided in my show notes under sponsors. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So this article by Roger Kimball about who's really running this show... I I don't think this sounds like a wild conspiracy theory, and maybe it's because my mind is broken and I just can't see these things or I'm too simple a guy to grasp the intricacies of what's really going on. But I think he makes a pretty strong case that, yeah, you know, Joe Biden may be the president of the United States, but does anybody really believe Joe Biden is the one calling the shots? I mean, the guy, it's it's hard to say this, and I'm not saying this to be rude or because I consider him a political opponent, therefore it's fair game to sling mud at him. The man can barely string together a coherent sentence. He shakes hands with imaginary people. He just, he's lost. It looks like elder abuse to me. It really does. I i i almost feel bad for him, even though I, I just, I loathe politicians generally. I almost feel bad for him as I see the confusion that he uh, goes through every so often. His His cognitive decline has been considerable just since taking office. And yet we're supposed to believe. Oh no, this guy's in charge, and wow, well, the economy's booming, and everything's great. No, it's not. It's not. And this is where Donald Trump's presidency actually gave a lot of Americans hope, because we had to, we could we could for once stop pretending that constitutional government was the same thing as the technocracy that was taking place around us. As Roger Kimball puts it challenging the hegemony of experts requires a widespread reassertion of that common sense morality to which the founders appealed, but which is regarded by our would be masters as an impediment to utopia. A key problem as Elmer sees is that what's left of public morality is now understood in terms of values or subjective preferences based only on individual will. Even in the small handful of healthy institutions in civil society, The political and civil rights of the ordinary citizen rest upon a precarious foundation, threatened and undermined by the powerful claims of social progress. Now, Roger Kimball says those claims are nearly irresistible, as anyone who has dared to question the dominant narrative on issues from climate change to COVID policy to race and identity politics would know. The question, he says, as i put it elsewhere, revolves around the location of sovereignty. Who rules? The people articulating their interests through the metabolism of ordinary politics or the bureaucratic elite who claim to discern the inevitable direction and goal of history and are preparing to marshal the coercive power of the state to prevent anything from cluttering up that highway to enlightenment. That really is the big battle. And here's the thing. You and I have more power than we think. Not to to go, I'm going to go out there and rule everything. If you want to really take the wind out of the sails of those technocrats or anybody else who thinks that they are better qualified to rule your life, there's this thing called consent. You have to freely give it in order for them to actually have any power or any effect in your life. You can also choose to withdraw that consent. And that can take a lot of different forms, but I'm strongly advocating maybe that's something that we should all be considering more more closely? How can I withdraw consent from a system that seems determined to take from me everything that I hold precious, starting with my freedom and everything that follows from that? Anyway, click on the link I provide in the show notes. I think you'll find it some worthwhile food for thought. You know, protecting kids comes pretty naturally to most of us, but like most things, it can be taken too far. I've got a great article here from Lenore Skenazy describing the delusion of our day known as the movie plot threat. thought you might like this. She says, how much better off we'd all be, saner, smarter, safer, thriftier, if instead of assuming the very worst any time we see a child alone or with an adult, we gave everyone the benefit of the doubt. Now, her article goes next to the words, what a pervert. Tuesday afternoon, a week ago, a woman in Arlington, Virginia, saw a man taking pictures of some children and just knew what she was witnessing, a creep on the prowl for kids with his camera. Disgusting. Quickly, she alerted a security guard, and according to a subsequent police report, she told him she believed the man was photographing children he didn't know for his own personal whatever. Well, the security guard went to investigate and made contact with the man. As it turns out, the guy was taking pictures of his own children, a dad and his kids on an outing. The guard came back to re- to report this reassuring news to the lady. Case closed. Except it wasn't. As the Arlington Police Department reported, the suspect then intervened, deployed pepper spray and sprayed the victim before fleeing the scene on foot. So the suspect is a woman in her 20s or 30s, a pepper spraying maniac not the man who was taking the pictures. The dad sustained non-life-threatening injuries which were treated at the scene by medics. So now not only is a dad recovering from a vicious and unprovoked attack, God knows how he explained that to his kids, but we also have a lady on the loose so obsessed by the image or the idea of predators everywhere and the image of herself as some valiant child-saving crusader, she literally couldn't accept reality when confronted with it. Security guru Bruce Schneier coined a term for this leap from mundane reality to thrilling depravity. He calls it the movie plot threat. And what he means is the more something resembles a movie plot threat, the less likely it is to happen in real life. Hence, the less time and money we should spend preventing it. It was a quiet day at the mall until a fiendish predator crept in with his camera, only to be foiled by that unstoppable force for good, the mace-spraying madam. Madam. Lenore Scanesi says thinking that way is the equivalent of seeing a small bruise and automatically assuming child abuse, which happens. Or seeing a child alone and automatically assuming neglect, which also happens. Watch dad Ashley Smith testify in favor of Let Grow's reasonable childhood independence bill in the South Carolina Judiciary Committee last week. His family was investigated for child abuse and neglect because someone saw his daughter doing her homework on the front lawn, assumed she was abandoned, And called 911, 911, rather. So, yeah, it must feel great to save a child, says Lenore Skenazy. It's something we'd all love to do. The problem arises when we assume everyone is a child abuser until proven innocent. Often after a lengthy, terrifying, traumatizing process. Ashley Smith's family, for instance, was investigated for eight long weeks before the authorities declared the girl had not been abandoned. In fact, her dad was just inside, working at home at the time. But during that investigation, the Smith family feared it would be torn apart. They're not wrong either. Once the state declares your home, it's turf. They do not go away by waving your hand and suggesting that they leave. Lenore Skenazy says, how much better off we'd be, saner, smarter, safer, safer thriftier, if instead of assuming the very worst Anytime we see a child or an adult with a child or an adult near a child or talking to a child or photographing a child, if we gave everyone the benefit of the doubt, also known as pressing pause on the movie plot threat generator. Okay, I don't personally know anybody who is that obsessive, but I know they're out there. And I'm not encouraging you, well, what you need to do is find those people and ridicule them and mock them to their faces. No, I'm just saying, just don't be one. You don't have to go looking for, you know, monsters to destroy, to borrow a phrase from John Quincy Adams. In this case, you and I just need to take great care that we don't become those kind of monsters, even with the best of intentions. We'll be back in just a few
0: moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: All right, I'm going to talk about a subject that's going to be kind of a sore one for a number of people only because every one of us is feeling a little bit of pain right now. It's, you know, when you're standing next to your car, watching those numbers inexorably rise on the gas pump, or maybe when you're standing in the grocery store and you're comparing the cost of a package of bacon to what it was, uh, you know, just a short time ago. Inflation is real. We all know what it likes to feel, or what it feels like, rather, to pay more for everything, and on a weekly basis. Have you noticed when they talk about inflation now, it's no longer just, well, you know, inflation for 2022 compared to 2021. They're doing it month by month. In some cases, we're starting to see week by week breakdowns. But here's the question I have for you. Do you know why it's happening? And if the answer is, well, I kind of know, let me share with you something here from Jeff Deist from Mises.org. Inflation quick and dirty. This is this is one of the best primers for understanding why everything costs more. He says, all of a sudden, everyone is an expert on inflation. Your brother-in-law, your local paper, even dilettantes at dubious outlets like the Washington Post or the Atlantic feel compelled to explain our current predicament. Now, with the admitted rate of consumer inflation running somewhere around 8% and the real rate much higher, even central bankers can't hide the reality from us. So the commentariat has to explain to us why this is happening and make sure we blame the mysterious workings of capitalism for our troubles. In other words, economics is back. COVID was a nice diversion and Ukraine took up all the media's oxygen for a few months, but now we must deal with the economic devastation caused by both lockdowns and two years of crazed fiscal and monetary policy. Everyday Americans, stubborn as they are, care more about rising gas and food prices than the political class would like. So they trot out Nancy Pelosi to explain how government spending actually reduces inflation and push pseudo-economic ideas like modern monetary theory to explain why more federal spending is always the cure. But what is really happening? Well, Jeff Deist says, first, consider the two COVID stimulus bills passed by Congress in 2020 and 2021. These pumped more than $5 trillion directly into the economy in the form of payments to government, payments to households, unemployment benefits, employer payroll loans, cash subsidies to airlines and countless other industries, and a host of grab bag earmarks that had nothing to do with COVID. This new money injected itself straight into the veins of the daily economy. Second, Supply chains remain degraded because politicians around the world didn't think through their lockdown policies. The deeply interconnected global economy does not have an on-off switch. Idle resources and idle workers don't simply spring to life and produce goods and services on command. But our policymakers have no conception of a structure of production, its temporal elements, or the ravages of malinvestment created by their political decision to shutter businesses. Third, he says, COVID allowed the Fed to justify yet another spasm of extraordinary monetary policies starting in March 2020. This gave central bankers an easy out, in a sense because real trouble was already on the horizon back in September 2019. The repo market, which commercial banks use for short-term or overnight financing of their operations, suddenly seized up and sent rates spiking. And these paroxysms embarrassingly, force, embarrassingly forced the Fed to to inject billions of dollars into its standing or its permanent repurchase facility, and to consider yet another round of quantitative easing or asset buying, even after it had promised to shrink its balance sheet, still bloated with the detritus of the 2007 crisis. All of this happened before any of us had heard of COVID. But the obvious question last fall, screaming to be asked, was this. How on earth... After more than a decade of aggressive asset purchases by the Fed, swelling the central bank's balance sheet from less than a trillion in 2007 to more than $4 in 2019, how did commercial banks still experience a liquidity crunch? In other words, what the hell was the point of all that money? But COVID washed away any questions about repo and silenced any critics of the Fed's largesse. COVID had to be defeated by God and monetary policy would lead the way. And so the Fed went into hyperdrive, buying trillions in additional assets to send its balance sheet soaring to nearly $9 trillion today, adding nearly 20% of all dollars ever created to the M2 money supply measure in 2020 alone. Jeff Deist says that same year with lockdowns firmly in place and a crisis mindset whipped up by both parties – Congress managed to spend almost twice what the Treasury collected in taxes, $3.4 trillion in revenue versus $6.5 trillion in outlays. How is such an arrangement possible, he asks. Given historically low rates of return on Treasury debt well below real inflation and given the almost unbelievable, irreversible profligacy of the spendthrift U.S. government, why would any sentient being continue to loan money to Uncle Sam? Why would anyone help Congress continue its debt-financed orgy? Why lend America money? Well, he says the answer is complex, ranging from the dollar status as the world's reserve currency to pension and sovereign wealth funds around the globe that hold U.S. treasuries by charter and even the relative strength of America's military forces. The question is thus as much geopolitical as economic, but in short... The world knows the Fed will always be there as a ready backstop to buy U.S. debt when appetites for such debt waver. Propping up congressional deficit spending, juicing equity markets, and constantly recapitalizing commercial banks are the Fed's true mandates. So here's a burning question for you. How does inflation end? And the answer is only with the pain, only with pain rather, in the form of a necessary corrective recession or depression. Congress must slash spending. The Fed must stop buying assets and stop tampering with interest rates and existing U S debt must be allowed to mature and roll off the Fed's balance sheet. We should force the U S federal government to sell assets, especially land to pay off treasury obligations and fund future, future social security and Medicare entitlements. And if necessary, the federal government should be forced to default or apply a haircut to Treasury investors who, after all, took a risk like any investor. And he says, if all of this sounds politically impossible, you understand the deep unseriousness of today's politics. Now, there may be some economic uh, lingo in there that uh, that isn't immediately apparent to you what it means. But this is one of the most concise Explanations that I've seen. And I'm just going to suggest please click on the article when you have time. If you need to, have a dictionary at hand. Look up the words, look up the phrases that you don't understand. But if you would take the time to get your mind around what Jeff Deist is describing here, you would have a much better feel for what is going on and be far less likely to be misled by people either in the media or out of the media who are trying to tell you, all oh, that's the Putin, Putin price hike, all right? Yep, this is all Putin's fault. I mean, there's a time where I would have been shouting at the TV angry at, uh, you know, the, the Putin price hike, huh? Now I just roll my eyes and shake my head and say, yeah, whatever. I mean, it's it's so obvious that, that we're being lied to, that we're being programmed, you know, with and gaslighted with these these various talking points. And the truth of the matter is, for a lot of people, they don't really want to know because there may be some bad news. Well, does this mean that I'm going to have some, you know, some pain in my future? Well, gee, I don't know. Do you think that uh, if we had a a corrective recession or a depression, would we feel pain? Yeah, the answer is yes. But you have to understand, it would not be, you know, a destination at which you arrive and you may never again. It's not the Hotel California, right? It's not like you can check in, but you can never leave. I mean, I've been following commentators for years who have been warning about the, the danger of kicking the can down the road and continually expanding, you know, the availability of credit, artificial low interest rates. Everybody gets, gets easy money, easy lines of credit. Well, we're starting to experience a contraction of that credit. And you're seeing it in the, in the uh, rising interest rates. We're seeing it in the, the devaluing of our dollar. And I think the hardest part for most people, at least for me, this was the the challenge, was to get my mind around the fact that this isn't just, well, it's unfortunate how it played out. But, you know, sometimes that's how it goes in economics. I think there's something a little more deliberate that's at play here. Like this is this is a controlled demolition of the economy. In some cases, it almost feels like a kamikaze attack, you know, like we're we're flying the economy right into a cliff. So rather than, you know, focus on, oh, the fear of what might happen, what's going to happen, what do I do, what do I do? Just understand that there are things you can do and probably should be doing to better your position. First and foremost, it's time to get your mind around what is monetary policy, what is fiscal policy. It's not rocket science, although we're sometimes supposed to pretend that it is. You listen to a Fed chairman or chairperson you know, selling some kind of word salad to the press and everybody nods. Oh, yes, yes, exactly what she said. What? Uh, yeah. Educate yourself. Stick with things that are tangible wherever possible. And you'll figure this out.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back.
1: HSLammo.com is one of my sponsors on this program. If you uh, or someone you know enjoys the shooting sports, I would urge you to click on the link that I provide in my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com and check out HSL Ammo for yourself. They carry most of the popular calibers. They make uh, high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. And it's it's a great way to convert your money into skill. We live in a time where having skill at arms is just one more of those necessary skills that can actually bring peace of mind. Knowing that you can defend hearth and home, you can put food on the table if need be, or you can just have a, a great way to recreate. This is one of the most under underrated experiences that I could think of. But there is something to be said for putting a 22 over your arm and just uh, going out hiking. A place with wide open space, you know, and maybe maybe the opportunity to, to bag some game presents itself or if not, you know, you can set up a tin can and entertain yourself for quite a while. But if you're going to if you're going to purchase ammo, please consider hslammo.com and let them know that you heard about them here on this program. So should public health officials be above the law? I know, that's a loaded question. What do you think, Brian? Oh, of course, yes, by all means, because I can trust them where I can't trust myself. Well, apparently a couple of well-known individuals really do think that this should be the case. And I mentioned this early on in the show about, uh, you know, Dr. Fauci was taking some umbrage last week with uh, a court, a, a federal judge, striking down the uh, travel mask mandate for the entire country. And I want to share with you Donald J. Boudreaux's letter that he wrote. So This is uh, how Reich and Fauci are wildly wrong. And I think he's writing this to pretty much anybody within the press who, uh, who is paying attention. It says, Dear Correspondent, Because when you sent me the following tweet by Robert Reich, you provided no commentary. I can't tell if you approve or disapprove of its contents, which which are in full. This is the quote from Robert Reich. Perhaps there's something wrong with a system that allows a 35-year-old, unelected, Trump-nominated judge, whom the American Bar Association deemed unqualified, to strike down the travel mask mandate for the entire country. End quote. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, look, Sensing that you find Reich's tweet to be a brilliantly damning commentary on U.S. District Judge, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell's ruling against the CDC's mask mandate. Donald Boudreaux says, I feel obliged to explain why I think Reich's tweet is, to put it uh, mildly, moronic. First, there is no legally specified minimum age for serving on the federal bench. Joseph Story, no slouch as a jurist, was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court at the age of 32. Second, like him or not, Donald Trump was president from 2017 to 2021, and among any president's duties is to nominate federal court judges. Third, Judge Mizell wasn't put on the court by Trump unilaterally. She was approved by the Senate. Fourth, all federal court judges are unelected. Fifth, Anthony Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, and other public health administrators are also unelected. Sixth, while the American Bar Association did did indeed rather deem Judge Mazzel to be unqualified, it did so because she spent too little time in the private practice of law. Now, if this criterion suffices to render someone unfit for high government office, well, he says Anthony Fauci is even less qualified for his position than is Judge Mazzel for hers, given that Fauci spent no time in the private practice of medicine. Upon completion of his residency in 1968, he took a job with the National Institutes of Health, and he has ever since been employed by the government. Seventh, because the CDC is a federal government agency, its diktats generally cover the entire country, a fact that should be doubly obvious in the case of diktats affecting interstate commercial air travel. Judge Mazell could hardly have ruled against the mask mandate for just a subsection of the country. Eighth, Reich skates alarmingly close to implicitly endorsing what Fauci recently ex- endorsed explicitly, namely that government-employed health, public health bureaucrats, be above the law. About Judge Mizell's ruling, Fauci declared, "We are concerned that uh, we are concerned about that rather about courts getting involved in things that are unequivocally public health decisions. I mean, this is a CDC issue; it should not be a court issue." Now, Donald J. Boudreaux says, look, to propose that any government action be immune to judicial oversight, that is, immune to oversight by the formal guardians of the law, is to propose that the officials who perform that action be above the law. As Reasons Eric Boehm wrote in reaction to this authoritarian outburst by Fauci, this is either a complete misunderstanding of the American system's basic functions or an expression of disdain toward the rule of law. That's some pretty powerful stuff. And that's a very important distinction that we have to make. And look, I understand the pandemic um, hit the reset button on a lot of people's minds. And because of fear, they were willing to set aside skepticism that they normally would have reserved for public officials saying, look, we don't have time to explain. Just get in the car, you know, and do what I say. We've got a couple of years now to look back and say, how did that turn out? And I'm going to start with the obvious thing, and I, you know, I'm not trying to rub anybody's nose in it here, but the places with mask mandates, strict mask mandates, did they see any kind of measurable stopping of the spread of coronavirus? You know the answer. The answer is no. Whether mask mandates were in place or not, COVID spread through the population as viruses do, as pandemics go, just the way that every pandemic before it has spread. And the more it spread, the more contagious it became, it it, uh, mutated, and more and more people developed natural immunity as a result. So when you see people still saying, well, you know, we're still going to insist that if you want to ride in an Uber in New York City, you've got to wear the mask. Just know, it's not about following the science. It's not about we're just keeping people healthy and safe. There are people who got a taste of authority, who found it to their liking, and they're loath to give up even the tiniest bit of power that they might have over others. And I'm not just talking about unelected, you know, pseudo-expert health bureaucrats. I'm talking about the Karens out there who whose identity became wrapped up in, you know, I'm wearing my mask, I'm doing my part, and would go out there and accost people who weren't masked. Their whole identity is caught up in that virtue signal. And yet how many times have we seen, you know, elected officials, for instance, insisting everybody mask up. Everybody in this city, everybody in this state, everybody here is going to mask up because I said so. And yet, you know, they show up somewhere. Oh, it's a birthday party. Oh, they're at some fundraiser. And they're curiously unmasked. Rules for thee, but not for me. I'm sorry, I'm on a little bit of a tear here, but uh, the frustration of the last couple of years is something I'm still trying to work through. And it's not that I had any kind of special insight, but I knew from the very beginning, my conscience knew from the very beginning. That's that's probably the best way to put it. It wasn't because I had it all figured out. I didn't. But the harder the push was for people to mask up, and I don't care if it was at church or if it was in, you know, the stores or whatever, the harder that push became, the more it seemed to me this is not about keeping people healthy. This is about a badge of compliance and seeing who will comply and who won't. And then the, you know, the uh, what's the word, the cavalier attitude towards towards heaping scorn and derision? Well, we ought to fire people if they don't wear a mask, it'll put you on a no fly list for list for life. Tell me, did that really accomplish anything of value, or did it just kind of give power hungry people a chance to flex and feel like they'd accomplished something? All I know is my deepest admiration is still reserved for the people who didn't knuckle under who refused to put their mask on just because everybody else was trying to pressure them to do so. Doubly so for the people who resisted the, the jab when the pressure was was being intensified. And I, I'm not sure that we're out of the woods yet. I think we yet could see another uh, form of this come back. I mean, I'm already seeing, you know, different uh, media organizations testing the waters. Oh, you know, there's avian flu going around. Stay away from chickens. Be afraid. Be very afraid. The only thing I can tell you is that, look, life is always going to involve risks. There are going to be trade-offs. You're going to have to make decisions. How much risk am I able or am I willing to encounter as I go about living my life? And it's not reckless to say, well, there is some risk, but I'd rather spend Christmas with my mom than let her sit alone and feeling good about we're all safe, right? I guess you'll have to make those decisions for yourself, too. But I'm saying trust yourself. Don't wait for Dr. Fauci or somebody else to give you your cues about what you can and cannot do.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.